Silvisanth, I assume that you've heard about this hot new app all the kids are talking about, Clubhouse. I have indeed. I think uh, when I first started using it, I really enjoyed it. But now I'm not so sure. I, I mean, I invited you. What, do you. what do you think about it? Well, that I think is the beauty of Clubhouse. On my profile, it will say forever invited by Vasanth Tiravati. And this yeah. is one of the concepts of the flywheel, right? So the reason that's a good feature is because people who have their prominent friends really, really want to invite them. You want me to get your invite so you can have bragging rights forever that I'm the one who got to invite Faraz on the app. That's such a good way to bring people on the platform. And then those people will do the same thing. So it's this flywheel that results in these virtuous cycles. Clubhouse has all of these brilliant, maybe a dozen different growth strategies that have built up this product that I think you can argue that the product itself, how good that is, is secondary to how smart their growth strategies have been. If you had told me all this when I first joined the app, I would have agreed with you. But in the months since, I feel like the app isn't what it was. It's, it's very cluttered. There are a lot of topics that I'm particularly not interested in anymore. And I think, I think maybe that's the expectation when you grow this fast. You, you don't really have your product down because it's constantly changing to adhere to the expectations of new users from all over the world. I, I don't expect the app to get particularly any better. I think we'll see a lot of churn in the future. Why do you think there's going to be a lot of churn? I think a lot of the early adopters, the people that joined it in the first six to eight months, they came into it with a certain expectation, which is you know honest conversations uh, about certain topics, very niche subjects. As you lose these people, you lose the beauty of the original app, and it becomes a lot of marketing and oh, let me let me teach you how to make a million bucks on Facebook, or let me teach you how to do drop shipping. When it becomes okay. like that, I don't see it. But but listen to the word you're using. Like you're saying that the early adopters of Clubhouse, as if this app hadn't come out one year ago, it's only been out for one year, and we're already past the early adopter phase. Like in the world of startups, that means that they've achieved product market fit. If you've gotten early adopters to evangelize this thing so much that the general population is on here, like my parents both know about Clubhouse. So for them to grow this much this quickly is, I mean, there's no example. No other social media that I can think of has grown this quickly at this scale. I like to think of these things in terms of data, like empirically, we don't have enough data. We don't know year over year what their churn is. All these people are joining, but maybe they're only going to be there for a month. Time will tell. I'm not particularly optimistic anymore, but just because I feel like the content isn't what it used to be, but never say never, right? So I think that's a good lead in to our topic for today. So welcome to another exciting episode of What Can You Tell Me About Software? Our guest today is Courtney Greer. So when you develop software, if you want to quickly get it in the hands of your users, you want to develop software in an agile way. And that is exactly what she's an expert on. So how do you make software? Release it in two-week sprints, get it in front of users, see what they think. I'm sure this is what Clubhouse is doing constantly. So Courtney is on the commercial software engineering team at Microsoft, where she works with passionate developers to empower organizations to do more. She is a certified Scrum master and a certified Scrum product owner. Our conversation is going to be very, very interesting. So let's get into it. All right. So Courtney, welcome to What Can You Tell Me About Software? Well, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Awesome. We're very excited to talk to you about Scrum and project management and all things related to the software development lifecycle. So just to get started, what is your job at Microsoft? So I'm a program manager at Microsoft, which 
if you ask someone at Microsoft what a, what a program manager, you're going to get so many different answers. Like it literally means nothing in the grand scheme <laughs> of things. So I'm um, in that bubble. I'm actually a product owner in this new role for some of our reporting technologies inside of the commercial software engineering team, which we work with Microsoft customers to build really cool technology, whatever they need. So I worked in the tools team for quite a while, started off as the scrum master. And as things started transitioning, became a product owner. Uh, for this new stack of technology. Do you sort of have full responsibility over the product or how much is your responsibility? Yeah, pretty much full ownership. You're really the face of the product to both the stakeholders and the customers. And you're kind of that first face of whether it's the good or the bad, the feedback, kind of the complaints, you're really going to feel that for your developers. And from that feedback and everything that comes in it, you became like the strategy lead for that product. So you're kind of making decisions on what's the roadmap of the project, what features you want to implement and what timeframes you want to implement, and also the communication out and training of that product as well. What is a Scrum Master and how do you transition to being a, into a product owner? So the Scrum Master on the team, pretty much they serve, they call the servient leaders. They are pretty much the, the glue and the foundation of a team that is running Scrum. So they're kind of, I, we call them Scrum captain nowadays, but we're the, pretty much the leading the ship of the Scrum practices. Meaning if a team wants to run a, a good Scrum foundation, they need someone to kind of act as the police of like saying, hey, we're not doing this right person to set up the meetings and also the person that's kind of listening and observing the team and just helping to pivot along the scrum practices and how they can perform better. They are right in between the product owner um, and the development team. So they kind of serve as like the middle ground for that healthy tension that's supposed to be between the two. And they kind of are coaching the product owners and kind of the stakeholders as well of what it means to run a good scrum team and also kind of from that uh, create some good software. So just to take kind of a thousand foot view back, if we're looking at what the structure of the team is, you've got your developers and you've got your QA who's on one side mm -hmm. and they're writing code, building the product, shipping it out, deploying it, testing it. Mm -hmm. Then you have the project management side and you have the customer. So the customers are saying, okay, here's what works about the software and here's what doesn't work about the software. They're feeding that into the product owner, which is you. And yeah. Yeah. And that gets disseminated to the project managers. So you have the product owner and you can think of them as the product manager. They kind of take okay. different terms, project manager, product manager, and they are funneling those requirements. Basically, they're producing a backlog of requirements, a backlog of work and features that need to be done. And they're funneling it to the development team. So after that, they give it to the development team through what's called like a sprint. They're going to do the work and they're going to feed it back out to the stakeholders and what they call like product demos and things like that. So the in-between person who's kind of going back and forth between the two is the product owner and how they go back and forth is creating backlogs, creating roadmaps and kind of introducing it to the team. The Scrum Master is kind of helping with those ceremonies and helping keep the product backlog clean, setting up those meetings with the stakeholders and making sure that everyone is having the right conversations and structures in those meetings, making sure that the stand-ups are in the stand-ups, we're talking about stand-up related topics and in the retro that we are kind of having productive conversations that's going to lead to like the betterment and the health of both the team and the software as well. So I think a lot of people have heard the term Scrum and they don't really understand exactly what that means. I can definitely tell you that before I got into the project management side of things, I had some difficulty understanding the abstract. 
So Vasant and I thought that kind of a, a fun and informative way for us to really understand what Scrum is, is to go through like a, go through a thought experiment. So okay. Vasant and I have actually been working on a startup for the last year and uh, we've been developing it. And the product that we built was so good that Apple bought us. So we built a proof of concept for and something which could use your Bluetooth to figure out what your dog is thinking. And Love the tech, it. the world good. needs that. Exactly. We were thinking the same thing, but we are experts in like neuroscience and Bluetooth technology and pet psychology, but we don't actually know how to like build an app. So, you know, Apple sees this as their, as their, you know, next flagship app, but they, we don't know, like, how do we, how do we take this technology and actually create an app that should be released commercially? So help us out here, Courtney, what do we do? All right. So you, I, I, the way I would divide this, actually, and you talked about that division between the product owner and the development uh, team. It's the way that I can break it down is that the product owner and the stakeholders are responsible for the what, they're responsible for the why, and the development team is responsible for the how. So as you start to envision what your product looked like, that's on the other side of the house. You're doing MVPs, you're doing the business planning, you're understanding kind of what that feature breakdown looks like. And the features can be very vague. Like we just want to, like the feature is, I want to be able to click a button and that translates immediately what the dog is saying. Or I want to click a button and it stores all of the dog's last, yesterday's text. So I can go (laughs) listen to it again because they really want to study, you know, what my dog is trying to say. Those simple features are kind of just those quick line items that you don't have to be a developer to understand that. You're just kind of putting it into the backlog and saying, hey, this is my wish list. The stakeholders, it can be the product owner at the same time, the people that are kind of envisioning this, this product. So um, like Tim Cook would be some Tim for Cook. this project. Tim Cook is okay. like, he's just running by throwing things out. He's just like, I want this, I want this, I want <laughs> you know all this stuff. The product owner is kind of trying to formulate what that means in tech in tech talk, but they're leaning on the developers for that. And inside of the development team, you'll have like tech leads. You'll kind of have people that have more emphasis on the design. You'll have UX people that when they see those words of like, I want this, they know how to break that down. And the product owner is leaning on them to see like, what does that mean from a technology standpoint? What can we offer them? What do we have to take away? What are the risks inside of that development track? And they're building that backlog based off of the conversation. So they're having on the other side. Not to say that these conversations can't come together because there's often times where a lead developer is in the envisioning session with with the CEO, with someone who has no clue what the tech talk is, and they're kind of helping mend that gap because there's only so many times they could tell you so many things that you can be like, we didn't build it that way. No, no, no. Stop, stop, stop. stop. They have to lean that gap together. But to create the backlog of work, it starts at the beginning of just wish lists. Just envisioning. I always said, I'm like, the sky is the limit. If I just told you that we could do anything right now, let's start there. And then let's start to bring it down to like, what do we need to work on just to get this to stand up? That might be the highest part of our backlog. And then from them, let's figure out the roadmap for the rest of your features. So it always, for me, just, it starts off as just dreaming big dream of what we got. And then it takes the team, which Scrum is all about teamwork. And from there, you kind of lean on the process to get to how are we going to do it? So we've built out this backlog for what our MVP is going to look like. And the developers have looked at it and they say, yeah, I think this roadmap is doable. And Tim Cook has said, this is going to put Apple on the map as the world's first $2 trillion company. So what's next now that we've got the roadmap? So we start sprinting. So sprint is that is a terminology where you're kind of you have you have a time frame of work that you want to do. And a sprint can be as long as a month. 
It can be as short as one week. So you have a sprint that you want to decide, okay, these are some chunks of work that we want to commit to as a team to get done. Those sprints build on top of each other. So you're taking items from the top of the backlog, very much like a cute one at a time, one at a time, and you're implementing it as a sprint. So the sprint's never done. That backlog is absolutely endless. You want a backlog of a continuous product to be endless because as you put the MVP out, there's feedback coming in. Tim Cook's not going to be happy the first time the right. CEO is, right? right? They're going to have so much conversations, but you want to take kind of, all right, we have this roadmap, we're ready to go. Let's pop some things off of the top here. And there's some ceremonies that go into place of how you do that, right? When you when you have an item in the backlog first, there's a meeting called the backlog refinement where the team's sitting together and they're saying, all right, this feature, how do we do it? What are some like how long is this feature going to take to get done? And you're estimating it, not time, but you're saying, hey, this is a big piece of work. This is the only thing that's going to fit in our sprint. And you're trying to figure out, based off of that BioCloud refinement session, at least some estimations or some target dates and figuring out, okay, this is going to be V1 and it's going to be within a month. We can deliver this product. And this is V2. This is when we can deliver that. So as you start to move down the backlog, you begin to form like a complete product. But like I just said, it's endless. So there's never like, all right, we did it. There's the goal. There's, of course, like, this is what we're shipping V1. This is what we're shipping V2. And as you continue to work and Tim's like, all right, we got enough to at least make the public announcement around it. At the same time, when that announcement goes out, that product owner is, you know, searching the web, getting their feedback and creating scenarios where people can say, hey, I hated this, which doesn't mean you're done. It just means, okay, we got a lot of feedback right, or right. this is amazing, but I like this too. And you're completing that circle. So Scrum, it's a circle. It keeps going. What pops out of this kind of products or ideas and what comes into it is a feedback and some changes and alterations, but it keeps going into a circle, which means, you know, you keep a job. <laughs> it sort of sounds to me like you're getting pulled in every direction. I mean, you got the person that came up with the idea. You have Tim Cook, he's coming mm-hmm. in, he's throwing things at you. And then you also have the developer team, you have the UX team, you have the UI team. How do you manage all these personalities? How do you decide, here's where I'm going to compromise? It sounds stressful. Like, how do you manage that? That stress is actually where the Scrum Master comes in. They're understanding and they're alleviating that stress, not by telling people what to do, but kind of educating them on the Scrum framework. It's interesting, like when I first came into my role, there was an established team, there was established tool set. They were running Scrum the way that they believed um, that they could run it. But there was a lot of pain points in the team. And those pain points weren't solved by saying that person needs to go. It was more of, okay, let's evaluate what what we're doing with Scrum right now. And let's start to tweak these things coming from, like, in retro, somebody said, hey, I, I pivoted three times during my sprint. The requirements kept changing. You know, I didn't get my work done because one minute I was doing this and the next minute I was doing this. And the scrum master is like, okay, why is that happening? Is the CEO just walking into the room and messing up the developer's work? That shouldn't happen, right? The impediments that come into the sprint, there should be a wall and that wall should be the scrum master. So they're saying like, does the CEO have your cell phone number? Tell them to stop calling. Tell them to call me instead. That's where you're looking at the scrum framework and as a scrum master, all right, where can we change and where can we kind of coach to change? You're going to have a boss. You're going to have a CEO that really is just like, I need this now. This has to happen now. And your job as a scrum master is to get in front of that person. And it's terrifying (laughs) to tell them why they can't have that now. And you're not just going to say that blindly. You're going to say, hey, you know, we 
got the direction from you to run Scrum. Based off of the changes and the way that you're communicating changes to our team, you're actually interrupting our development's work cycle, which means that it's lengthening our project. And in order for us to kind of get these done to the timeline that you wanted them to get done, we're going to need you to take a step back and trust our process a little more. If you have some changes, we'd love for you to kind of sit down in a meeting between you, myself, and the product owner and figure out how we can squeeze this in the backlog. If it's something that we have to do, we have to prioritize. Let's take the necessary course of action to do that. And the benefit of that, Mr. Tim Cook, is that we're going to be able to stick to our commitments, do the releases when they're scheduled, and actually have a software and to be able to take our time as well to give you a software that kind of relates to, to, to Apple's, I almost said Microsoft, Tim is not there, um, <laughs> Apple's expectations. Yeah. <laughs> right. So it's a challenging job and there's a lot of personalities, but if, no matter what personality you're faced with or who is coming in and mix it up, if you lean on Scrum, the answers get whittled out. You always have the cause and effect and like, hey, this is happening because look, Scrum says this, and this is what it's pointing to. And if you don't like it, maybe we should not run Scrum. Or is there another agile methodology that would work versus your your pace and what we're trying to do? So you brought up the term agile. So it seems like this is one of the foundational differences in Scrum, which is, so you've talked about these sprints, let's call them two week long sprints. And we've got our big backlog of stuff. So we're about to start a sprint. We load in two weeks worth of work. And every two weeks, you can decide exactly what the next sprint is going to look like. But is it fair to say that you don't want to change stuff within the sprint? Once you've committed to a sprint, you want to, and the Scrum Master should buffer that. Is that, is that accurate? They should absolutely buffer that. And there's many reasons that you don't want that to happen. The, the beginning reason is just course correction on its own is very dangerous. At the beginning of the sprint, the team is making a commitment. Uh, part of like the Scrum uh, methodology is that you have a self-organized and self-accountable dev team, meaning that they're getting in front of, let's say, the, the world or kind of Tim and saying, hey, we're saying that we can do this. We're saying this at the beginning of the two weeks. This is what we're trying to do. And all of us together, meaning even if you're the HX designer or the UX designer and you're like the backend developer, you're all accountable for each other's work. So you made that commitment at the very beginning of the two weeks and you figured out how you're going to do it. You kind of lock that down and that's your goal. You put your headphones on and you go to have someone come in in the middle of that and say, nope, just kidding. Just kidding. That four hour meeting that you just had to figure out all that, we're changing it. That's another four hour meeting. Really holding the team's accountability like on, off of a ledge there because they're like, hey, we did just pick that, spend that time and figure out what we wanted to do. And we really did put that effort into there. And for you to come and change it, that kind of blows our accountability. Like we don't really need to be accountable for this anymore. And once that self-accountability is gone, people aren't really attached to their work or invested. And you'll see a very disengaged team. You'll see people leaning back during retros instead of saying like, hey, my work was this, my work was cool. It's just like, well, they told us to do this. They did this and it becomes less of like my work and more of like it's up in the air. So it is the job of the scrum captain and hopefully they can lean on the product owner as well because usually that tension is it's not just the CEO. Sometimes it's a product owner saying, oh, by the way, we have this priority now to be like, hey, 
look at the, the effects of what you could cause. And it's always, like I said, that cause and effect by doing this one simple thing that seems minute, right? It seems like, oh, my CEO's yelling at me, let's just throw something in. But it actually does have a lot of effects down the line of like the cohesion of your team. And also like trying to throw something in and then get some software done within a week, just the disruption of your software as well. There's some definitely long-term technical debt that comes in from just making very fast changes that don't have enough plan or kind of talk through in the middle of your sprint. Yeah, this reminds me of this old scrum uh, Cohen that they say about the pigs and the chickens. So the story goes, there's a chicken and there's a pig and the, the chicken comes to the pig and says, hey, let's start a restaurant. We're going to call it eggs and bacon. And the pig is like, no way, I'm not going to start a restaurant with you because you know, you're just giving eggs, but I'm giving yeah. bacon. I'm committed. You're not. So mm-hmm. it's the same thing within a scrum team, right? Like the development team are the pigs and the stakeholders are the chickens and mm-hmm. the chickens are important. You have to listen to stakeholders and you have to incorporate their feedback. But as far as who is determining the flow of the sprint, who's involved in that very granular level, it's got to be the pigs. It's got to be. And that's why, like <laughs> what I said with my my development team generally is like, once you walk out that door, like during scrum planning, that's when this starts. You guys better have a plan mm-hmm. before this is over because you're on your own now. And it's not saying like I'm leaving you to the wolves, but it's kind of like you're responsible. Like you're going to be in this little bubble now. Go to the plan that you all created. It's keeping you accountable. And it's also making sure that we're keeping ourselves accountable to what we said to you, as in we are letting you have this time. We're putting you in this bubble. Go do amazing work. So You mentioned the rituals of Scrum. So let's kind of go through them. So we've had our backlog of features that we need to be able to get out our alpha or at least our MVP of be able to read your dog's thoughts. We've done, you mentioned that there was a backlog grooming session. So we went over the backlog and we turned those into requirements that the development team can actually accomplish. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've loaded them into the sprint. Now what? Okay, so we got the sprint, like we talked about the sprint planning meeting, that's at the very beginning of the sprint where you're just saying, that's where it's a two part, right? The product owner is coming in and saying, hey, this is what I envisioned. This is what our product backlog looks like. This is what I'm proposing that we do. Here's the themes of the sprint. It's talking about the what and the why. And then half of the conversation is more about the how are we going to do it? The developers spend time tasking the user stories, really just coming together to do. What is that? What is the user story? The user stories are basically the product backlog. That's the most refined piece. So the actual task of a user story is exactly how in very detail and mostly tech detail of how you're going to get that user story done, how you're going to answer the acceptance criteria that the um, product owner puts into place. How are you going to solve for this problem? So that's what a user story is. So it's sprint planning. You're collecting your user stories. You're saying how you're going to get them done. And then the, the sprint starts, the track meet begins. Inside of a sprint, there is a meeting, the stand-up, which is recommended to be 15 minutes long, where every day the team is getting there. They're saying what they accomplish when it comes to the sprint before that meeting and what they are, are planning to accomplish after. At the same time, it's the time for the team to address any blockers that they're having at their work. We want to give the developers as much time as they have to be heads down. So this 15 minutes allows for just everyone to kind of look at at, look at any artifacts that are important to you, meaning the burn down chart, which is just like the progression we're getting to completing our sprint goal and just saying, okay, 
here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm not going to do. So everyone is on the same lens. One of the other practices of Scrum is transparency. And this is aiding to that. We all can see. And if a stakeholder wanted to pop their head in and say, they're not talking, but they're saying, okay, what is everybody doing? They know exactly what's being done in the sprint. The stand-up is recommended to be 15 minutes. The way that you can kind of lean on that and why it's 15 minutes is so if you do stand up in it, 15 minutes is about a lot of time before your knees start getting weak. If you're <laughs> um, and you're starting wanting to sit down, if it goes above longer than 15 minutes, of course, kind of the conversations might not be as useful. So there's other conversations that you might say, like someone's going off track and you say, hey, can we parking lot that? Meaning this is something that can happen after and we'll have the right people that need to be there. So if you're like, oh, I'm, you know, this is something different. I'm going into the weed, da, da, da. You'd be like, hey, can we parking lot that? And maybe you, me, and Faraz can go into a room afterwards and kind of have that discussion because it should be pretty quick around. And like we said, depending on your team size, which of course with the scrum team, kind of nine or eight people is a limit. You want to be able to do that round table in the 15 minutes. So of course, like we're saying, that's status of the work and then any blockers that you might have that both either the Scrum Master or the product owner um, can address in that meeting. Okay, so we've got the daily stand-up meeting. Let's say it's every day at 10 a.m. So I come up to the daily stand-up and I, if everything is good, then I say I was working on a user story that would let me convert the Bluetooth signals into language that my dog is speaking. And if that's all good, then I'll also say, and and today what I'm going to work on is I'm going to take that text from the dog and convert it into Mandarin. But then it's possible that Vasanth comes in and he says, you know, I just, I couldn't figure out how to get the, the dog thought waves to separate all of the noise from that. So I, my temptation would probably be to say like, no, dude, it's really simple. You just have to do like, you know, this Fourier transformation math to like work Mm -hmm. it out. And then I'm going to start drawing on the board. But you as a scrum master are going to say, don't do that. I'm going to say, hey, can we pause? I'm going to do a yellow flag or whatever in their working agreements. We were like, that's how we're going to signalize a pause there. Because you can't imagine you get done with that conversation and just guess what? The next person has a problem too. That stretches the meeting out to an hour. And as a scrum captain, um, it is your commitment to kind of stick to those times. I like to say like, if a meeting goes over time, I've done something wrong. Like I'm going to let you out exactly when I say, and if we didn't cover something, let's refine, let's figure out what went wrong in this meeting. Let's figure out some conversations that didn't need to have. Um, And pretty much, yeah, you want to raise that flag up and be like, hey, like I said, parking lot at meeting. We don't have we don't have to throw this conversation away. But after this meeting ends, can you two go in a room and maybe have a deeper conversation? And if it's important to the whole team, maybe there's another meeting that we need to set, or mm. maybe this is something that we could decide on in design review or something. Another mm. meeting that you might have for these conversations. Cool. So we did the sprint planning session. Now the sprint is live. Then we have the daily stand up. What's the next ritual? All right, so we're we're doing the stand-up every single day, and let's say we have a two-week sprint. Now we're getting up into sprint close. So there's a couple meetings that happen during the close of each sprint. One of them is sprint review. That's where the team is looking at their backlog, and they're just, you know, they're reflecting very lightly on the work that had to be done. In this meeting, also stakeholders are invited because some stakeholders said, you know, we made the commitment that their piece of work was going to be done. And I'm just making the assumption that you have multiple stakeholders that are invested in different features. They want to come and see a view of kind of what you have done, and they might want to offer some feedback. And this is the meeting to do it. So we're looking at the stories, user stories that were closed. We're looking at the user stories that might not have been finished and not really, you know, we're not shaming anyone. We're not saying, we're not 
this isn't the time for a blame game, but we're just kind of getting a status and saying, hey, this wasn't done. These are the, this is the work that we, you know, weren't able to get to. And the product owner is making a decision from there if this is something that's going to flow over or this is something that, okay, we have other priorities and let's put this in the backlog somewhere else. And that'll be brought um, to sprint planning or backlog review later. What's also being done is demos. So you have a piece of work that is shippable. You have pieces of work, you know, that you want to showcase. Honestly, it holds people accountable. But also I find demos to be fun. It's a nice way to just look over the view and say, oh, this is what you're working with. And oh, maybe I want to work on that next time. That looks really cool. And that meeting is just a time in a way also to celebrate that you finished the sprint. I like to kind of say happy sprint close, you know, make it more of an enjoyable thing because, you know, we're going in two week cycles and they can become monotonous. So you want to take some breaks to, uh, separate a bit. So that one's called the sprint review, or some people like to call it sprint close. So to, um, to carry our analogy, this would be like Tim Cook brings in his dog, Floofy, and we demonstrate for the first time to the world that with your iPhone, you can reveal what Floofy thinks about Tim Cook. Exactly. And in this meeting, you know, Floofy was his name? Floofy? Correct. Not Fluffy, Floofy, got it. No, Floofy. Um, <laughs> Apple, Apple thinks different. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Floofy, maybe during that meeting, he looks at the demo and he goes, you know what? That was not what I had in mind. <laughs> <laughs> he says it in the Bluetooth, of course, and we all have it by then. And he's like, you know, this isn't what I had in mind. In that meeting, they're not going to say, hey, change all this, change all this. And the development team's not going to take those notes and go. That's going to be voice to the product owner. The product owner is taking the feedback from the stakeholder, from Tim, from Floofy, and saying, all right. We hear what you do. We did what we committed to, right? This is what you signed off at the beginning. Let's take that feedback. Let's put, let's convert those to user stories, the same cycle of what we did at the beginning. Let's put that in the backlog and let's prioritize it. One of the kind of downfalls is feeling like you have to do the work right now. They're not happy. We have to do it now. We have to prioritize it. But then you start kind of playing with those levels of, all right, you have a lot of stakeholders here. A lot of people you promise could be work done. And there's not, there's not a perfect, there's not a perfect stack of technology. So you're not going to get to that finish line. You're just going to keep iterating and iterating. And so you want to make a balance of kind of what you're reiterating on, what tech that you're cleaning up. And it's kind of, you want to make sure that your backlog is diversified. And if every time you're ending a sprint, you're doing changes in the next sprint, you're not really equaling that out. So even though they can offer feedback and Floofy can bark all he wants to, you're not going to take in all of those barks and start the changes now, which is why the next meeting is a lovely break before you know people go and run off and do all that work as once. You can close the sprint, you reflected on what you did, you know, ongoing. And then you're like, all right, what are we doing next? I think that uh, the demo is one of the most important innovations in Scrum compared to how people used to develop software, which was yeah. through this like very monolithic, we were going to plan everything up front, then we're going to start coding it up, then we're going to start QAing mm-hmm. it because the world changes, especially the world of software. It changes a lot. So for you to be able to incorporate that feedback every two weeks and put it in the hands of business who is not necessarily coding, but has their eyes on the ground is... I. I think there's a very strong argument to be made that the reason that there's so much startup innovation occurring over the last like 10, 20 years is because Scrum became popular like in the late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah, I mean, it's just an impossible world to think of right now that if I was going to say, all right, I need, I want to create this new social media platform and I go into a cave for four months and work on it 
that at coming out, hey, someone's going to have it already. Probably that feature is going to be useless, maybe just because the world has changed so much and it's happening so fast. So the final, the final ritual of Scrum is what? It's my favorite. Okay. Retros. Sprint retrospective. That's my favorite. That's my bread and butter there. Where you're getting together as a collective team, product owner, development team. Stakeholders generally are not in that meeting because they're not going to be the essential core team that's kind of adhering to the working agreements, which is a set of rules or expectations that the team would set as they're forming. Not the pigs, no chickens, no chickens, no chickens in that inside of the retro pretty much is where you're starting to not vent, so to speak, not really just throw everything out with no aim or not any resolution, but you're really just reflecting on the sprint and just talking about like what went wrong, what went right. And what can we do to change it? My goal for every for every retro was at least have one action. You want to make sure that there's some actions that you can immediately act on and make some changes to. And then after the next retro, how did those changes work? You're kind of, in a way, experimenting even with the cohesion of your team, but in a very positive way, in my opinion. You're not going to get it right every time. These pivot points are just a way that you can refine your process. Like we said, it's a very lightweight framework. There are no rules or no guidance. So as you start to build, we call that storm form and norm, your team, you're trying to figure out what works best for your team. And the retro is the best place to do that. In the retro, you start off pretty much just relaying the working agreements. I like to just touch on those at the beginning saying, hey, this is how our team operates. This is what we said. And the the working agreements would be like something like, hey, if you're going to be late to a meeting, message someone. Meetings should pro- like, let's not have meetings before 10. It's very unique to the team. Kind of have fun or some things that are just very light. Always have pizza on Fridays. <laughs> kind of things that your team is kind of, hey, if there's ever anything that goes wrong, we're able to call each other out because we have the expectations of what we're here to do. So you kind of want to touch on those. And then you're leaning into the activities such as I know there's a popular one like the mad, sad, glad, where everyone's going heads down and saying, what were they mad about this sprint? What did they not like? What did they wish never happened again? What was sad what was something that, you know, it affected my work. It didn't really make anything crazy, but I really didn't like it. It made me feel sad, which is like using feeling words is <laughs> there because, you know, we usually don't talk like that at work. And what made me really happy? What's something that I really want to do again? And then everyone's going out, I mean, usually give it 10, 15. It depends on the timing of your retro and just writing to themselves. And then we're sharing it. From that just creates an organic conversation. The less I talk as a scrum master in retros, the better. I always say, if I'm kind of pulling people's teeth, that means people are disengaged or not too caring. But if there's riveting conversation and if it goes so long that we're like, all right, sprints, uh, retro's almost over, right? We're leaning in. That's good. That means there's a lot to talk about. There's a lot of opportunities for change and growth within a team and everyone's excited to do it. And so some of the actions that might come out is just like, hey, When we, you know, like we talked about before, I got course corrected about three times in my sprint. The CEO just popped into my office about three times in that opportunity, like in the opportunity of sharing, that might be something the scrum master didn't know. That might not be something that your development team didn't know because we're all in our little huddles working. So you have the opportunity to voice that. And as a team, we could be like, all right, what if the action is 
if the CEO comes to the door, you don't answer. <laughs> so <it's> like, <laughs> you call Courtney right away, you know, something where you can go, okay, this is how we're, these are some rules that we're going to set just based off of the conversation that we had in this retro and some things that we're going to apply to our next sprint. The scrum captain takes the scrum master takes this, these rules and make sure that people are abiding by them. That's another way that they're kind of policing in a way and making sure everyone's appearing. The reminding them maybe every day, maybe every other week, like, hey, this is what we said we're going to try. Remember this? And it's it's interesting because it's not like it's not always technology that we're pivoting. There might be a process that we're pivoting or just the way that we engage with each other via work that we might be pivoting. And those are being addressed and hopefully brought up and hopefully everyone's feeling safe and comfortable because it's a closed door policy. No one's going to be recording the meeting. We're not going to run until the CEO. Everyone feels safe and comfortable to share that. And what comes from retro if no one has like their defense up or no one's kind of like we all know that we're a team making changes is that we're just growing as a team. We're learning as a team. We're becoming close to the team and we're able to kind of, and in, in a way, as we get better as a team, we cre- we create better software. And it's that correlation of just like, if you're happy at work, you make some happy products, you make people happy, your customers on the other side. And I think that concept is often lost um, because Scrum seems just like a process. It's another mm. process term and it's so rigid and we have to do this. But in the back end, kind of just this idea of a retro where you're just talking and discussing your feelings, that seems so opposite from this mechanical word that we use as a process. And it's just an opportunity, like I said, to let your guard down a little bit, just kind of reflect in a positive way, in a way that's going to just um, take your team to another level. That's uh, that's amazing. And honestly, like after listening to all that, I feel like I need to implement Scrum into my life. I don't know. It's some, some aspect of it, maybe... Just in your personal life? life? When I learned about Scrum, my girlfriend was so mad at me because I just kept trying to bring it in. I'm like, well, you know, if we had a review on the chores, <laughs> chores yeah, exactly. we had to do, we wouldn't have this problem. She's like, leave it at work. <laughs> Don't do it to me. <laughs> right. And I like one of the hack projects that we did at Microsoft, we displayed to kind of spend a week just hacking away at stuff for fun. We created an application that didn't go anywhere called Scrum Your Life. Mm-hmm. Where basically just based off of your to-do lists of your life, you're able to like put it in a backlog based off of the priority that you set. Like you're saying, go to the post office. How important is that to you? What's the rough timeline? And you put it in a backlog and every day it would generate <laughs> like a sprint goal and just right. be your notes. And it's just like your to-do, like the things right. you have to do in the day, you can in a way prioritize them because priority in your life is something that we miss all the time. And have it in a way. And if we're sharing feelings every two weeks in our life. That's great. A plus. A A plus. (laughs) I have, uh, I've got some friends who are in the film industry. So I I like had multiple conversations with them where I was like, listen, film productions are completely screwed up. You guys need to start using Scrum. And they wouldn't hear it. They wouldn't hear it. It's got to be a way to translate it because it can apply to any industry. I know it can. It absolutely can. And actually, you know, that at least it seems to me like, Scrum is a great methodology. And you did say that it's incredibly flexible. You can sort of uh, form it in any which way for, for any particular application or whatever uh, thing it is you're building. But has there ever been a case where you went to rely on Scrum and maybe you thought to yourself instinctually, you're like, this isn't the best way to do this. Scrum is maybe not the right thing to do here. Yeah. And, and talking through just like Scrum is just one pillar of the agile methodology. Mm-hmm. If anyone ever says we're doing agile scrum, 
it's just like they're saying we're doing vegetable carrot like it's kind of just competitive. <laughs> like there's like there's other frameworks and there's one called Kanban which is very much like it's trying to limit work in progress so they're not like doing a collective sprint or like everyone's telling you what to do pretty much like you come into work you grab what's at the top and you go everyone's just grabbing from the top and you go and that's a very valuable very valuable valuable agile methodology but it doesn't work for each team during in my team pretty much we had this pivot point where we had some people who wanted to do kanban and we had some people that really wanted to stick to scrum and we really had to have a sit-down discussion and just kind of identify what we wanted to do and it really wasn't like what everyone likes better. And some people just really wanted to get rid of the meetings. <laughs> it was more of like, what are, our, what are our current pain points with our team? Like, what are we struggling with the most right now? And which one is going to better help us solve for it? So I feel like whenever you're having issues within kind of the scrum framework or the process, it really never kind of I don't know. I never feel like it's something like the meetings are too short. The meeting, like nothing as like specific. It's really taking a step back and saying, okay, what, like, we all know what our pain points are. We all know these elephants that are in the room and how are we going to solve for that? Either with this process, with this framework, we get to adjust based off of like where we feel there's pain and where there's not. And if we mess up, which we're always going to do, <laughs> we're always going to get it wrong. There's no problem with switching it and trying something else. There's nothing sure. that's going to like completely throw off your product unless you change everything overnight and try to keep working, right? There's always going to be opportunities for growing. One of the other things that really caught my ear was this idea that you often have to ask people to compromise where uh, maybe it's not in their best interest. And that really sounds like an incentive problem. Aside from managing everybody's emotions, you got to get everybody on the same page and in, in some cases take something away. So you're probably really good at that now. Do you have any strategies to break bad news or have somebody compromise on something? Yeah. So in my first role at Microsoft, I actually was doing sales. So I learned the art of compromising. When people are getting into a debate or an argument, usually people don't think about compromising. They think about, I win, you lose. You lose, I win. And that's not what compromising is. Compromising is trying to figure out, okay, here are both of our intentions. How can we meet in a way that's going to help our common goal out? When you're trying to find a scrum master, I think that's where empathy or someone who's used to kind of seeing through people's words and kind of going past and really just noticing things outside of their words to help us find a common goal. So if someone is saying, you know, I do not want to do all of this technology is boring to me. I really don't like working on this. I want to work on this side of the backlog. You know, let's figure out what's going on. Like, is it the product you don't want to work on? Do you not want to work at this company? Like, <laughs> Trying to figure out what is the root cause of these statements that you're trying to make and why, why is the product owner putting so much pressure on the team? Where, where can we figure out outside of the words that are being said, these cause and effect and try to come to a solution there. We don't want unhappy engineers. So finding a compromise is less of just like, what do you want? What do you want? It's taking a step back and figure out what needs are not being met and how can we help meet them in a way that works for everyone. Once this project is completed, so in the case of our dog project, you know, let's say we have this product out there, we've done multiple iterations of it. Scrum Master has helped us through all of it. How can you tell if the Scrum Master has done a great job an average job or a bad job? I love this question. It's fun because like, this is where I felt on my team. I feel as a scrum master that I'm doing good if I'm not needed anymore. 
which is so hard to say because that's your job. <laughs> and that's the natural evolution of why I'm a product owner now is that the more, the less people are complaining about the process and they're just doing it, they're picking up the meetings, they're kind of setting the expectations in the meetings themselves, they understand how to go. There's a situation where you start to shift as a coach into kind of just like an advisor in a way. At the beginning, when you're really structuring, you're in every meeting, you're kind of handholding everyone. And then as the team starts to grow and they start to be able to run Scrum effectively, your voice isn't needed too much anymore. And that's good. It's really good in my perspective. So I feel like the best Scrum master is gone, is silent. They're a ghost after a while, which is like, I don't have my role anymore. They're still needed. And there's other opportunities. And I feel like in different teams that like I'm leaned on kind of outside of my roles to go help and scrum with new projects that are spinning up or there's just a LT meeting that they have to do like a week long process review. And they're like, hey, and is someone come and sit and help us with this formula and help us run these meetings and organize it in a way that we're going to get the output that we need? Like that's a scrum master's job. And that's something that they can fit in really well. And so, yeah, like that, that's where I felt like it's best is that I'm doing my good. I'm doing a real good job if I'm not there anymore and everything's running good. Excellent. So I'll actually say this. I ran I ran a scrum team as a product owner for like three years and I was variously the scrum master and I've learned a ton just from this last hour of speaking with you, Courtney. Sweet. Uh, so thanks. So thanks a lot. I love it. I'm a scrum nerd. I am. And it's interesting. Now I'm in the product owner role, which is a big thing. For scrum master and product owner, they should not be the same people or else you're fighting yourself. And that's, that's, that's not good. You're just having conversations in your uh, head. Where, time, where were is... you? Where were you three <laughs> years ago when I was, when I was leading this team? It's a hard, yeah, it's a hard thing to people to shake. And I feel like sometimes even in my role, because I have like the scrum master expertise, like people are like, Courtney, can you run? I'm like, I want to, believe me, I do. I love scrum so much. And scrum master role was amazing, but just for the expectations of the team, I'm a product owner right now. You got to get someone else to wear that hat. I think it's so good to have it, a developer get exposure into scrum master role because they just know now the organization and the importance of kind of priority and they get to see that other side of the business. And there's a certain time where the product owner can take a step back and then jump into a scrum master role just to understand the development team more and have empathy in the ways that kind of you get to understand the lens of what developers are going through and some of their pain points. So it's a good universal role. Some companies don't have it as a full-time job. They just kind of have it on a rotation basis. So yeah, you learn a lot. I'm happy you got to learn something from me too. I can talk all day about it. I really can. I really think we should have some follow up episodes, like at least one on Kanban. And I, I, all right, th- th- this is a whole nother thing because personally, I like Kanban more than Scrum. And I, most product owners do. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, they do. They want things kind of going and like it pretty much like that limiting work in progress. And a lot of developers, I feel like it's a balance. Some developers like who like kind of knowing why things are happening and like being a part of that bigger discussion of like, mm. all right, you're not putting things in the backlog just to do it, like just figure out what's going. And some people are just like going fast and they know what they're doing. They know what the product is and like, just give me it so I can work on it. So I feel like is there an intermix between the two? That's where I scrum bond. Yeah. Scrum bond. That's yeah. something that's curious to me is like, yeah, what is that? Cool. Fun. All right. So we love to wrap things up by asking what in your opinion is the best piece of software made either in recent history or of all time? So I might be very controversial on this one. Cause I feel like there's some real good and there's some real bad. 
And I'm going to pick up an umbrella of social media in general, social media and our platforms that we're using, rather it be Instagram, TikTok, uh, Tumblr, when it was a thing, and the impact that it kind of had on the world and is still having on the world, whether it be good or bad. I feel like everyone in our generation kind of remembers the moment where they got on social media. For me, I feel like it was an accident with Instagram. I literally thought Instagram was just a camera filtering app. <laughs> and I was just taking random pictures and stuff. And then eventually someone liked it. I was like, what? What's happening here? <laughs> What's going on? But I feel like what it did for a lot of people and what it did for people that kind of my biggest example is just being a member of the LGBTQ plus community is just thinking of people that might have identified in a very rural part of town, be it Texas, be it this, who didn't have opportunity to talk to a lot of people. I feel like, yeah, what it's done for people that are like minorities and kind of being able to amplify the voices that were usually silenced in media and entertainment has been big. I feel like where we're going now with it is a very pivotal point that a lot of organizations like Facebook and, and Instagram and things are on the crux of understanding like the negative connotations and kind of where, what we what we have now and what where we're going with it and how that can affect us. We have a conversation of like mental health and like just being on Instagram and social media all the time. And the part now where we're comparing ourselves very similar in the way that we were comparing ourselves to like models and things on TV, it's happening now because of like the algorithms. And so although like social media for me was like a very important technology just for the connection piece and kind of the strength that it did within my community, it's getting kind of an irritable place. It's kind of a bit of frustration which I feel like is just a piece of any technology as it starts to grow, the more dangerous it can be, but the more compelling mm. it can be as well. And I feel like as we continue to have these conversations around kind of what the good and bad implications of technology is, social media is always going to be at the forefront of it. It's always going to be something that we have to pay very close attention to and make sure that we're amplifying the voices still of the people that are kind of minorities and people that are kind of sitting in the background and waiting for the chance that they get to leave their hometown and do something better or be something better. Cool. All right. Well, as I mentioned, I've learned a ton from this episode. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah. Thanks, no Courtney. Me too. Thank you both. I had so much fun. This is my first podcast. Oh, well, oh, for, for we're very, come. wow. Maybe we're very, come on our episode again. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. <laughs> That's our episode for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure to subscribe to us and rate us on Apple Podcasts. We would really appreciate the support. You can also follow me on Twitter at FZ from Cupertino and Vasanth at NextVasanth. See you guys next week.